I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before we start, a warning. This episode contains detailed discussions about sex and pornography. For millions of us, porn has become a regular part of our daily lives. And Brits are beating most of the world when it comes to how much we consume. One in five of the nearly 14 million people who watch porn online in the UK are doing so during the working day. That's according to Ofcom. And the UK is second in the world for the number of searches for porn only beaten by the US. Less well-known is that a quarter of adults watching are women and that schoolgirls are also looking at porn almost as much as boys. So what is that doing to women's expectations of sex? We're getting increasing stories of young girls talking about being scared of having sex for the first time because of what they're seeing in pornography. It's not being centred around women's desire. It's not being centred around women's pleasure. And today, a new book reveals 100 women's experiences of porn and what really turns them on. Normally you have to fall into those two camps. You either love it or you hate it. There's not the in-between, more conflicted space. And all the messiness and complexities around that. One woman said that she needs a hint of non-consensualness for it to be sexy. So why don't we consider women as consumers of porn? Is it harming women and their partners? And what can we achieve by breaking the stigma? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Jane Mulkerins. Today, women watch porn too. So why can't we talk about it? My name's Dr. Fiona Vera Gray. I'm a researcher in sexual violence, so I've come from a practice-based background. I used to work in rape crisis for about 10 years before moving over into academia. And what I do, the majority of my job, is research around sexual violence specifically, but also sexual harassment, extending out to all forms of violence against women and girls. Fiona, do you remember your first encounters with porn? I do. So it was a while ago. I'm 40. Three. I've just turned 43. Back when I finished high school in the late 90s, I worked in a newsagents and that was probably the first time because I was stocking the shelves with things like Penthouse and Playboy and that kind of thing. But at that time, I think I saw it, but I didn't entirely know what it was. It just wasn't in the mainstream as much as it is now. And the first time I actually saw any pornography was a partner that I had at the time when I was 19 had a, a VHS. And then one time we decided to watch them. 
was kind of funny. It was this old school pornography that had some kind of storyline, which is very different than the gonzo style pornography that's on a lot of the tube sites today. And when was this first experience with a VHS? With a VHS porn <laughs> film. Um, it would have been back in two thousand, I think, two thousand, two thousand and one. So okay. a long time ago now. Yeah, so almost twenty five years ago now. Yeah. Has the way that you access porn changed since that very first VHS? Yeah, so I think now it's fairly standard that the vast majority of people accessing pornography are accessing it online through free tube sites. So back in the 2000s, um, it would have been much more around downloading and torrent sites, file sharing between people. And then right around about 2014 is generally the time that people start to think of this thing called Internet 2.0. And it's when the way that we use the internet and how we could use it changed. So you got much faster internet access. You didn't have to download things anymore. You could now stream them. And sites started popping up everywhere where you could access free clips of pornography that were uploaded by other users for users to just watch online. And I suppose the other thing that's changed is that we've gone from laptops, from desktops to laptops to handheld internet access. So now you can access porn literally in the palm of your hand. Yeah, it's a really good point. So access has become more private. People have been able to access it at any point um, in the day. So it's quicker, it's easier. All of these things that have facilitated, I think, a greater take up of pornography amongst the population, but definitely for women, for something that's quite silenced women. People don't really talk about women's desire. People don't talk about women's masturbation. People don't talk about women using pornography. And I think the changes in technology have really enabled women to take it up in a different way than they did before. So interesting. So we know that porn is now very easily and readily available, thanks to the internet, as we were saying, on phones. Do we have any stats about how many of us are actually using it? There always seems to be three to four porn sites that figure in the top 20 of sites that we're looking at online. And in 2021, Ofcom, which is the communications regulator here in the UK, found that Pornhub alone had been accessed by 15 million people in the UK just in one month but that 25% were women. And other statistics puts it at about a third. So from a quarter to a third of people accessing pornography online uh, are women. We've established that porn's pretty ubiquitous and very easy to get. Why did you decide to write a whole book about it? Yeah, so it, it's it's ubiquitous, it's easy to get, but nobody actually talks about it. This is the thing. And, and definitely no one talks about women's relationships to it. And we weren't talking about women as consumers. A lot of people focus on the harms of pornography in relationship to younger people, and they're very much focused on those harms as relationship to younger boys. But I was doing, at the time, I was working for a rape crisis centre and we were doing work in schools. And I started to you know, hear from the girls that they were accessing pornography at the same levels as as boys were. Sometimes they were choosing to do that. Sometimes they were being exposed to it by boys. And I started to think, what are the messages that these girls are getting on mainstream porn sites before they've either had sex themselves? And so I started to look to research to try and get a sense of what's been said about women's views on and relationships to pornography academically. And there was just nothing. And it's, it's really surprising, given how common pornography is, how much it actually takes up a a public conversation. No one really asks the detailed questions about what are you using, what do you search for, how do you feel about what you find. So I thought 
I bet if I talk to women about this, they will actually tell me some of that detail that's missing in the research already. And they did. Had anyone done any research into girls watching porn? Were there any statistics that you found? They, they have. So the, and it's only been recent, though. That's really important. So BBFC did something, which is the British Broadcasting Film Classification. They did something in 2016, which was really interesting, where they took a group of boys and girls and then they took the parents of the same kids and they were asking them, how much pornography do you watch? And then they're asking the parents, how much pornography do you think your kids watch? And what they found was that both boys and girls were watching more pornography than their parents thought, but it was particularly the case when it came to girls. And then the Children's Commissioner in 2023 did a, did a similar kind of study, but just asking young people themselves. And they found that it was around 42% of girls had sought out porn themselves, compared to about 58% of boys. So it's a very small percentage in terms of a difference. But still, the dominant conversation is very much focused on boys accessing this material. Tell me a little bit about the unspoken assumption that you came across when you started having these conversations about women in porn. The conversation on pornography has been very much the trajectory that I can trace from the 70s. There's one camp that is women hate porn. They all find it exploitative. They do not watch it. And the other camp is a very quote-unquote sex-positive feminists love porn. It's all good. We're having a great time. It expands our sexual repertoire. And that's the two camps that you can be in as a woman. And so there's this unspoken assumption that there's no space in between, that you don't have women who are critical of pornography, who might be critical of the acts in it, but are still accessing pornography and are accessing pornography with those messages. And I wanted to see what actually they were watching and, and what I found, that the vast majority of us are in that middle space. So nobody's asked these questions before. Nobody's asked women how they're feeling about it and what they're watching. How did you go about finding women who watch porn and getting them to talk about it? Because it is still a little bit of a taboo in, a in way, many quarters. But it was actually really easy. So I think I wasn't asking specifically for women who watch porn. I, I asked, do you have something to say about pornography? Basically, I wanted women who watched it, who didn't watch it, and everything in between. So I put out a call on social media. I got 250 women saying that they wanted to be interviewed. And of that, in terms of how things filtered down, I ended up with 100 interviews with women. So the 100 women is not a tiny sample, but obviously it's not a huge sample. So this is a much more qualitative rather than quantitative piece of research. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is to get in-depth understandings about the place that something occupies in someone's life as a sociologist. That's what I'm interested in. It's very hard to do that through surveys. You can only ask quant questions. You can only get figures. And what you miss from that is the understanding of the trajectory in someone's life. So the way that I structured the interviews was around this idea, um, which had been coined by a colleague of mine, Maria Garner, of a pornography biography. This idea that actually you can map someone's pornography use and where it comes into their life and what they use at different points through taking a biographical approach. So that's what I did. So the first question was, when was the first time you saw pornography? And then through that, we kind of charted it all the way up to where they were now. As a social science graduate, I <laughs> very much appreciate the qualitative aspect. So with 100 women in-depth interviews, you've established women like porn too. Mm -hmm. Have there been moments in recent years which have proved that, that women's desire is a kind of mainstream, marketable, lucrative product? I don't think so. So I think still what we don't have is we don't have a real sense of women's desire being what's driving the market. Very much when you look at the content of mainstream pornography, 
the vast majority of it is written with the viewer in mind being a heterosexual white man. And you can see that in some of the representations that are repeated across porn being real racist stereotypes of women and of men being repeated, really sexist stereotypes and a really particular idea of what women's role is in sex and men's role in sex. And the thing is that's really important is that neither women or men come out very good in that. So we're getting increasing stories, and I had some of them in the book, of young girls talking about being scared of having sex for the first time because of what they're seeing in pornography and what it's telling them should happen because it's very much something that is done to women. It's not being centred around women's pleasure yet. So in a way, it's been mainstreamed, but instead of the mainstream expanding, it's like the mainstream has kind of streamlined women's desire into a very particular box of what sex is, who does it and how it happens. Coming up, what happens when principles clash with pleasure? And why that conflict may be holding women back? That's after the break. This weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts, just for subscribers, on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcast to find out more. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So the women who do watch porn, what sort of porn are they watching? What do they like to watch? Is it different to, as we're saying, what is made for men and what men like to watch? The thing that comes up a lot is lesbian pornography. So that's what uh, the vast majority of women in statistics, even from Pornhub, 
are watching lesbian pornography. And for myself, the women that I spoke to, a lot would talk about watching lesbian or girl on girl. And it's really interesting because Pornhub's explanation for that and my explanation of that is quite different. So Pornhub talks about it in terms of women having sexual desire towards women. And this is, I'm talking about straight women watching lesbian pornography. For the lesbian women that I spoke to, they didn't watch lesbian pornography because they didn't like how it represented their sexual life. That's fascinating. Yeah, and in a way, that's why heterosexual women are watching that because they don't like the way that heterosexual sex is represented in pornography because it doesn't represent the type of sex that they want to have, where their pleasure is centred. So in a way, some of the heterosexual women that I spoke to that watch lesbian pornography, and also they either watched women masturbating or massages, they wanted to watch something, some of them, you know, with a caveat, because some like something else, which you can go on and, and talk about. But some of them wanted to watch something where they could be fairly reassured that something violent was not going to happen to the woman. Because I had a, a number of women say that they would be watching something and then all of a sudden she would get strangled or she would get slapped across the face or you'd see an expression on the female performer's face that would make the woman watching it feel I don't actually want this to happen. And so women would turn to watching lesbian pornography, masturbating, those kind of things, to try and lessen the possibility that they would encounter some kind of violence in what they were watching. Are there any statistics out there about women watching lesbian and girl-on-girl porn? There is from Pornhub. The thing about Pornhub, Pornhub isn't the only porn site, and I just want to be really you know, other porn sites are available. Other porn sites are available. Um, what they do that other sites don't do as regularly is they release statistics. Every year they release a Pornhub year in review where they talk about the statistics on their site. So that's why they're good for researchers in terms of what they say. And they've found consistently that lesbian is the most viewed category by female users. So and is that from, across women of all sexual persuasions? They don't know, so right. that's the thing. And they also don't necessarily know if you're a woman. They base it on the cookies that they've got on your computer. But they say that from 2014, lesbian was the most viewed category by female users and that something like girl on girl was over 400% more likely to be searched for by women than men. And then by 2022, lesbian porn was the most viewed category worldwide. So you can see that that's kind of increasing over time, but also really stable in terms of women's preference for that over other kinds of pornography on those mainstream sites. So getting away from the mainstream sites, what about the porn that is made specifically for women? Mm -hmm. What do women think about that? They like it as an idea. <laughs> they love it as an idea, but you have to pay for it. And the vast majority of women that I spoke to said that they don't love porn enough to pay for it. And then I also had a number who would say that it's great in principle. I would pay for it if I liked it, but actually I don't like it because uh, one woman talked about it as feeling too worthy, feeling too like it was trying too hard. I had some other women talk about the fact, you know, in feminist pornography um, and queer pornography, a lot of the time what someone's trying to do is move away from this idea of the stereotypical porn star, you know, so moving towards diverse bodies, diverse sexualities. Some women say, actually, I don't go to pornography to see women that look like me. I go because I want to see these unreal, quote unquote, unreal looking people doing, quote unquote, again, unreal looking kind of sex acts. So I don't go to it for the reality. I go to it for the fantasy.
In your book, you mention women speaking about the element of darkness as well. Can you explain a little bit more about what they said? Yeah, so that's something that came up that was really interesting. I had one woman said she almost goes to porn for she needs a hint of non-consensualness for it to be sexy. And I, I talk a bit in detail about it in the book because it's something that really needs unpicking because women didn't say this without feeling a sense of conflict. So women would talk about being aroused by and sometimes searching out pornography featuring women being humiliated or being harmed or women in a submissive position. And then at the same time talking about sometimes feeling conflicted about that. So able to make sense of it for themselves and thinking they would, again, see something change on someone's face where they would think, I don't think she actually liked that. Or just something happened where they felt that that was a little bit out of the comfort zone of the performer. And it's something that's been found in quite a lot of research talking about women's sexual fantasies. So you might know Nancy Friday, My Secret Garden, which kind of came out in the 70s and really blew the lid on women's fantasy lives. (laughs) Would you please welcome a good friend and a good lady, one of the good people. Here is Nancy Friday. Nancy, you're on. (laughs) Thinking back to 1973, though, your crew was so funny. I remember when they called me to ask me to come out to do the show, and uh, uh, they said, oh, I can't, we can't wait to see Tom on screen with a woman who's going to talk about sex. <laughs> and I must say, you looked at me rather askance. Not the cool, calm, collected man you are now who doesn't wince when I mention masturbation and oh, vagina and the rest of that sort of thing. She got letters from all across America saying all number of things that women were fantasizing about. And one of the things that she really pulled out in terms of this idea of fantasizing about non-consent or about darkness was that it in some way relieved women of having to be in the position of being a woman who wants sex because we still, from the 70s to 2024 now, it's still seen that if a woman is asking for sex, then she's asking for it, you know, that she's up for any form of sexual violence that might happen against her. We're still in this dichotomy between, you know, you're either a virgin who doesn't want sex, who just has sex done to them, or if you're asking for anything, then therefore you're somehow more okay with with sexual violence or you're seen as not being a worthy victim. And women are constantly in this balancing act. I also think that it's it's partly true in a way we are encouraged socially as women to adopt a submissive position sexually in relationship to our own desires and to our own pleasures. And that doesn't mean we don't get pleasure out of it, but it's also thinking about how society situates and positions us in particular ways to be more likely to want a particular thing. You know, that men are positioned in particular ways to be more likely to want to be dominant in sex, and women are positioned in particular ways to be more likely to want to be submissive. But People don't really want to talk about that. And uh, and I, I had some of the women in the book say really great stuff around this, that it's taken a while to get to a point where they feel okay with talking about the fact that some of their desire might be social. It's not necessarily an innate thing. And it's hard for us to think about that because we want to think, actually, there's aspects of myself that aren't touched by society, that they're, they're, they're actually me. And this isn't saying that it's not actually you, but it is saying that we are shaped by society and that includes shaping in some ways our sexual desires. I mean that is a very difficult conversation to have and it's a difficult concept to extrapolate for yourself this idea of a fundamental conflict at the heart of the idea of consent even that intellectually consent is something we want and we know we should be asking for but 
in the heat of the moment, it's not necessarily something that sparks desire. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why it's so difficult, right? Because then also the, the vast majority of my other research is around the impacts of rape, thinking about the criminal justice system in relation to rape, lots of stuff around sexual violence. And it's really hard because I think we are in a society that in lots of ways eroticizes non-consent. And you see that in pornography, you know, that, that there's repeated tropes around reluctance and uh, things like voyeurism and upskirting and lots of pornography that's about doing things to women without them knowing. And that's been positioned as being sexually arousing. That's been positioned as being erotic. And we'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't think that as women, we are also taking on some of that and that that is starting to shape our sexual desires and pleasures. I had women talking about seeking out explicitly violent pornography that they'd looked at since they were 15 and 16, and then also talking about having experienced sexual violence themselves and just feeling very conflicted about that and not knowing where to put that. So do you think that we can get beyond those two camps, those two narratives, that either you love it, you're the cool girl, or you think it's violent and artful? And also, do you think that getting beyond that could be could have some positive impacts, particularly in people's relationships, you know, where people still, whether you watch it or not, find it difficult to talk about porn? Yeah, people don't talk to their partners about porn. That's one of the big things as well that I found. So, you know, again, the conversation about hiding porn from a partner has been very much dominated by men hiding porn from their female partners. And absolutely, that's what some of the women, they gave me some really strong, powerful stories about how that feels like a betrayal, but also particularly for some of the younger women, they feel like they have to be the cool girl that's okay with it, so they can't even say that it feels like a betrayal. They kind of feel like he's cheating. They don't know why they feel like that. They can't tell anyone because if they do, they're told that they're being frigid or being a prude or all men watch pornography, so you have to be fine with it. So again, having to walk this really fine line with it all. But also women talking about them keeping it a secret from their partner. So they don't talk to their partner about it. And that was true for women that had male partners and women that had female partners. So that there was something about the pornography that they were watching that they didn't really want to share with a partner, sometimes because of that conflict, because they didn't want people to think that they thought that it was okay for other people to watch the pornography that they were watching. And so I think anything that increases the space for people to be able to talk without being shut down, without being told that what they're doing is wrong, I just feel like that will move us somewhere else. Because the other one of the things that universally amongst the women they spoke about concern for the next generation. So I only spoke to women who were 18 and above. But even the 18-year-olds, I mean, again, I'm much older now, but the 18-year-olds were worried about the next generation because of what they had seen already and they were very fearful of what was coming for the next generation. And so I think that we, we kind of owe it to that generation to do something now. And if all we can do is open up that space to talk, then let's try that and, and see where we get to. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Jane Mulcarins, and my guest, the Deputy Director at the Child and Women Abuse Studies Unit at London Metropolitan University, Dr Fiona Vera Gray. Fiona's book, Women on Porn, 100 Stories, One Vital Conversation, is out today. 
and we'll put a link to buy it in the Times bookshop in the episode notes. Times subscribers also get 10% off. The producer today was Sam Chantarasak. The executive producers were Kate Ford and Fiona Leach. And sound design was by Mao Lasetto. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to listen back to an episode I recorded last week with my colleague Megan Agnew about her visit to California's Orgasm Commune. We'll pop a link in the episode notes so you can find it. If you can, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find us. Thanks so much for listening. 